Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, the host of this podcast, and I'm so excited to have you here. A bit about me, I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur and investor who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. The Dear 20-something podcast started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful changemakers they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts, we're here to humanize the whole thing. You'll hear from successful trailblazers who will share the highs and lows of their 20s, and you'll also get words of wisdom from some experts who will speak on a certain topic relevant for 20-somethings. And then sometimes it'll just be me on the mic hosting an episode where I share a recent reflection or story from my own life as I too am navigating this wild decade. We're so happy to have you here. Let's get started. Today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Robbie Shattuck. Robbie is the founder and CEO of Athos Private Wealth, a multifamily office and premier financial services community for innovative, venture-backed, early-stage founders. Athos guides entrepreneurs and venture investors through the multiple stages of building their family offices by advising on estate planning, financial management, and other personal financial needs well before others are willing to work with them. Robbie is an active private investor, managing four hybrid venture funds and investing in dozens of venture funds, companies, real estate projects, Web3 businesses, and private credit funds per year. Prior to founding Athos, Robbie was an early employee at Iconic Capital, an 80-plus billion dollar multifamily office for the tech elite. Robbie managed a dozen family offices for some of the most influential minds of our time, including the founders and CEOs of Twitter, LinkedIn, Dropbox, and Lyft. He managed more than $2 billion in assets and oversaw the net worth of more than $20 billion. Robbie cut his teeth in his investment career at J.P. Morgan Private Bank. He graduated from Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah with a bachelor's in actuarial science and minors in business management and Portuguese. Love the Portuguese in there. That's fun. (laughs) Robbie's greatest joys in life are spending time with his wife and three daughters and spending time outdoors away from his screens. I can't wait to chat with him and share his story with you now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome Robbie. Hey, Robbie. Yeah, it's good to be here. How was hearing your bio back to you? Does it feel weird, like thinking about the progression so far? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I wrote the bio, so I, you know, it's it, it's pretty fresh. It is weird when you think about it because I think about where I grew up and where I came from and where I am today and kind of where we're going. And it's, uh, I'm kind of blown away myself. And if anything, it's a little outer body experience to some extent. I love it. Yeah, you've definitely done a lot. Were you born and raised in Utah, or tell me like the kind of that early early childhood spot and then we'll get into it but i'm curious like you say you've come a long way i know you went to byu but where were you born and raised yeah so i actually grew up in the bay area but not not in the bay Uh, i claimed the bay area but i was about an hour hour and a half away from from all the excitement and hype i was in a small town called hollister so if you've ever been to the bay area you get on highway or get on the 101 because i'm in california you got to say the 101 exactly uh, you take the 101 south and then you take the 25 east about 30 minutes and you're in this small little farming community about 30,000 people that's where I grew up and uh, I no disservice to that community but most people really don't make it out of there you kind of born and raised and stay there and it's it's a great community but I um I always knew I wanted to do more and get out and leave and so it's yeah it's been a fun journey that's amazing did you feel like it was because of your parents was it because of certain people in that community that made you feel like you could do anything? Was it maybe reading more about some of these cool tech icons or business leaders? Like what was the thing that made you say, I want to get out. I want to go do more. Yeah. I was just a normal kid. I was on the swim team. I played water polo. I'd go surfing because the beach was maybe 45 minutes away. And that that was life. But I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I I had no clue what my ambitions were. And my dad worked for, uh, at the time, Sun Microsystems when it was uh, still around before it was acquired by Oracle. He was there for 20 plus years and uh, he would do the long commute. And I think at sometimes it'd be up to two hours each way driving. Don't ask me why, and but he did it and it, I, was, I was always amazed and I always knew I did not want to do that. I wanted to do something different and, and get out of a small town and be close to the action. Um, but I, uh, I went to school at BYU in Utah and like I'll fast forward to kind of your your answer or your, to your question, but I went to school at BYU 
I still had no clue what I wanted to do. I was a declared biology major my freshman year. I did not major in biology. I was a declared psychology major for a semester. I declared a lot of different things and did not finish any of those and instead ended up in actuarial science. But one thing that really did it for me is I can go into this more detail, but through a bunch of networking, I ended up getting a job at JP Morgan in their private bank. And when I showed up on the first day, I really had no clue what I was getting myself into. I knew I wanted to go into investing once I was in my junior year of college. Beyond that, I didn't really even understand much. I wasn't a finance major. I just learned a lot. And on the first day, they told me, okay, the minimum for the bank was $5 million. And my jaw literally dropped. Like I looked at the banker across me and I was just like, wow. Who has $5 million? $5 million. Like that's a lot of money. And I asked them, I said, are there enough people that actually have that kind of money to, to invest? And they looked at me like I was crazy. And I grew up where thinking if you were a millionaire, you were absolutely filthy rich. Like you had made it in life. And as I look at it now, a million dollars is still a good goal to have, but you can't really even retire on a million dollars today. So that was kind of the thing that as I progressed in my career, got there, realized, oh, wow, like there's more you can do there. And through my career at JP Morgan and then at Iconic, uh, I, I learned quickly that a million dollars wasn't enough. And then I went to Iconic and they would add three more zeros to that equation and then say, oh, 500 million. Ah, that's, you know, that's a, that's a good chunk of change, but they're billionaires. So I, I guess you'll be okay. Iconic is in a league of its own, which we'll get to. I think people can probably imagine that based on your bio, the types of people who work at Iconic. But yeah, that's so interesting. I think a lot of people don't really know what investing is unless you grew up with it. It's so hard to know. It's a lot easier to grasp doctor, lawyer, teacher, because those are things that often, I mean, maybe law a little less so, but we see those growing up. Fire department, like we know what that job is. Investing feels so behind closed doors. It feels like people are doing magic, like, you know, on their computer and they're, they understand this crazy thing called the stock market and they do these things called investing into funds and startups. And I think, you know, it's just so much more secretive. And so, you know, it's not surprising you didn't know exactly what that was. Before we get too far into your your background and your story, we do typically start every show with one question. So I want to make sure I get that in. So okay. people, because I imagine some people are like, she didn't ask the question. And then we'll keep going with your story. So the question we ask everyone is like, what is something new that you learned this week? It could be serious. It could be light. It could be work-related. It could be personal-related. But anything new you learned in the past week that you want to share with everyone? I actually learned this last night. It was mind-blowing to me. It won't be mind-blowing to everybody. Tomorrow I am, well, tonight I'm loading up my car and tomorrow I'm driving from Utah, Salt Lake City to Palo Alto. Uh, I think it's a 14 hour drive. I'll have my three kids in the car and I'm driving my Rivian and driving that car. I have a lot of range anxiety about, are there enough stations to stop and charge and not get stuck? And I was talking to a friend last night and he told me that if you have a Tesla and you run out of battery, they physically have to get your car up on the ramp on the tow truck and they have to drive you to the next charging station. With the Rivian, they can pick it up only the front two tires and drive 10 miles. And with 10 miles, it will actually charge the car on the back wheels and give you enough charge depending on how far you are from a station to then they'll just pull over, unload you, and you can drive the rest of the way to the charging station. Seems like something so small, but for me, range anxiety is a real big thing. I'm like, I don't want to get stuck in the middle of Nevada with three young kids uh, waiting for a tow truck for three hours with no food and lots of kids screaming and 80, 90 degrees. So, yeah, that sounds terrifying, especially because I feel like with a 14 hour drive, that sometimes goes into the night. I imagine you might be staying over someplace, but that can be like an 8, 9 p.m. situation that feels also scary. Oh, it's getting dark. The day is ending. But you, so it sounds like with the Rivian, though, you still need someone to come and pull you, but at least they don't need to pull you to the next charging station. They just need to pull you a little bit. Is that right? So you still yeah. have to worry about someone getting you, but it's like not as big of a deal as literally having you put the entire car on the tow truck and go to the next spot. Yeah. No, I mean, we'll, we'll be fine. I just thought that was a fascinating design feature that uh, I'm obsessed with my car right now. I've had it for two months. So. Good for you. Okay. So what made you decide to get it? Uh, I got on the wait list in October of 21. And that was long after others had already gotten on the wait list. I think I was uh, number 50,000 on the wait list. I got the SUV. 
and they started producing the trucks and then the SUV. And I've always wanted an electric vehicle. And to give you context, I started my business three years ago and I've been driving a 2006 Honda Accord with solid scrapes on the side, the steering wheel covers falling off, the center console thing was, you know, it, it, the car was falling apart. And, uh, and finally, uh, they started selling them. And a friend of mine, he, uh, he works for Rivian and he got me on the friends and family list and I was able to get mine sooner than most. So hopefully people don't hate me for jumping the line, but I jumped the line. And uh, it's been night and day. It's, I mean, having technology, a screen that actually has technology on it. Um, my trusty Honda, I still have it. I can't sell it. That thing's uh, been with me since uh, 2011. But yeah, I just, I just love the idea of electric vehicles. I know there's still lots of kinks to work out and they're not perfect, but they're so fun. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's like the night and day of having a Honda Accord that's falling apart and a beautiful technologically advanced electric vehicles. Most people have steps in between, you know what I mean? So like when they do get their Rivian, they're going to, it's not going to feel like as much of a, you know, step change, but for you, it's like night and day. But I think that also is so rewarding because when you're starting a business, you know, I think like sometimes maybe people forget, like you are an entrepreneur, you started your own thing it's hard to be getting the new toys and getting the new gadgets all the time. And so I think part of it too is like celebrating like, Oh, I've made it far enough in my business where like I can comfortably get a new car and we can like temporarily retire the Honda. I think that's like a a milestone that a lot of people feel like they can maybe put the, the used car on the back burner for a sec and, and get something a little bit more upgraded. So you should also celebrate that milestone too with like being an entrepreneur. Cause I feel like, you know, you, you drive the Honda Accord till you can get the Rivian. That's a good analogy. Yeah. Well, I mean, when I started my business, uh, I can joke and say that I'm just like Facebook or Meta. I started my business in a garage in Palo Alto. Uh, I was living in Palo Alto. I was living in this small two-bedroom house with my two, soon-to-be three kids. My third daughter was born. I had just quit Iconic started business, took no clients, no assets. It's literally, I have an idea. I'm going to build something. And I had no venture money or funding. It was just, I'm going to drain my savings account and see if we can build something. It was, it was basically now or never. That was the, the thinking. And uh, the way it was set up this lot I lived on in Palo Alto, which Palo Alto real estate is incredibly expensive. Uh, I think it was, it was an acre and there were four cottages on it. And each cottage was maybe a thousand square feet. And now when I say that to someone who lives in New York, they're like, oh, a thousand square feet, that's huge. But for Palo Alto, it was small when you have a family of five. Yeah, that's tiny. That's tiny, tiny. It was really tiny. And there was a, a two-car garage that our neighbors owned uh, that was part of their unit that was kind of in the back of the property. But the garage door wouldn't lift up high enough where you could actually drive a car. And so it was just storage for them. To give you an idea of how old these buildings are. And attached to it was a single car garage kind of storage room that was part of our property, but they were attached. And uh, it had a sloping floor, no insulation, uh, one window and a skylight and cobwebs everywhere. And that was where I started my business. And so when I look at it, I need to get the picture framed. I've talked to my wife about this um, and talked to a few friends. I need to get that picture framed, like put it on my wall. And there's a picture of me holding my newborn with my laptop, these same screens that I have in front of me. And, you know, typing way, starting the business, it was just me and idea. And fast forward to today where we are and just like how quickly we've grown and exploded. It's, it's been a dream for sure. Like it's amazing. Yeah. Well, I know there's obviously been ups and downs along the way as there is for starting everything, but yeah, you should be so proud of how far you've come. And I think not enough people actually take photos of those early days you know, like the, the sitting in the garage or like sitting in the chair in the corner. And I'm so glad you have that to remember because I think those are, you're, you're so in the moment and anxious about, okay, the clock starts now. Let's build this thing. You don't think, oh, wow, I will get where I'm going. And I want to remember like what it was like in those early days. <laughs> so I yeah. find a lot of people like when I ask them about some of those like early photos or like they're like, oh, I didn't even think to take a photo. So that's amazing that you have that so you can really see how far you've come. Okay. So, so let's get back to what you were saying. You were at JP Morgan. You'd gone to BYU. Why BYU? Are you Mormon? Is that, uh, is, was it a religious purpose or did you go to BYU for different reasons? Yeah. So I, I, um, grew up a member of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And, uh, in Hollister, my small town, there's actually a really strong community there. My age kids, or they say the youth, they were from ages 12 to 18. They're probably somewhere between 50 and 70 of us. 
and we would all hang out together. And so at my high school, we were still minority, but there were a lot of us. And I, I really didn't have any other dreams and ambitions. And for my small, small high school, there was one person, a friend of mine who I played water polo with, his sister got into Stanford and we were blown away. We're like somebody from San Benito high school, this small little farming community made it into Stanford. So it wasn't even on my list to even try to apply to some of those universities. I just didn't think it was possible. But BYU seemed like a good option, great school. Both my parents had gone there. And so I applied to two schools, BYU Hawaii, because I love surfing and I just wanted to go surf. And I did not get accepted because I think they read right through that. And and the second was BYU Provo. It was the only school that I got accepted to and only applied to two schools. And, uh, and so then I left California, went to... Um, went to Utah and uh, so glad I went there. I also met my wife there. So it's, uh, you know, makes it all worth it. I love it. Yeah. It's, it doesn't matter how an experience is when you can meet such a like important relationship, friendship, relationship, whatever it, it, it goes a long way. It's so funny you say that about Hawaii. I went to Hawaii one time um, and we were like, let's just stop by the university of Hawaii when I was in high school, just for fun. And I was like, you know, this seems like not a bad place to go to school. Everyone's wearing flip-flops. The people are surfing in between classes. So I get it. It seems like a nice life. Okay, so you went to BYU. You met your wonderful wife, which is so important. Can you share a little about how you two met? I'm so curious. You have yeah. obviously built this beautiful life. You've got three daughters now. What's that origin story with her? Yeah, so we lived in the, the dorms, and they were called uh, Deseret Towers, or DT uh, was the nickname. And DT doesn't exist anymore. They tore those down and replaced them with new buildings. So we lived in the same area. And because uh, BYU is a private religious school, anybody who's a member of the church would go to church every Sunday and they'd organize you based on geography where you live. And so they said, okay, floors three and four from this building. And they had the men and women live separately. And then the men live here, floors three and four. You're going to go to church at this time. There you go. And so we just both got assigned to go to church at the same time. And uh, uh, I met her, we dated a little, and then she broke up with me. And then I, yeah, we can get to that later. No, but she, she broke up with me for good reasons. Um, I was young, I was immature, and I then left and went on a mission to Brazil. That's, that's how I uh, know Portuguese. So I lived there for two years. And... Um, and then three days before I got back from my mission in Brazil, she left on a mission to Southern Texas, McAllen, Texas. She was there for a year and a half. And then when she got back, we reconnected once, twice. She actually asked me out. And next thing you know, we were engaged and married shortly thereafter. Wow. Good for you guys for having that time apart. I've always thought too, when people go on a mission, that must be so hard, like in your world, like everyone does that mission. And so it's like, you're almost forced to do this like long distance thing right after you've met and fallen in love, even if you hadn't broken up. So it sounds like it was probably for the best too. You were both able to like explore, you know, different parts of the country slash world and then come together when the timing was better. Yeah, no, it was amazing. Uh, if you want a, a boot camp that isn't so much about physical manual labor, but more about like mental and spiritual growth, you can't find anything better. I mean, I was 19 years old. I got on a plane, said goodbye to my parents, didn't speak the language and showed up in Brazil and someone picked you up. And I, I went to a training center for two months, but uh, in that training center, they teach you Portuguese and then they send you out and say, go. And you're like, hold on, hold on. I'm still learning what's a conjugation and wait, what's the subjunctive? And like, what are you talking about? I'm trying to figure this out. People are talking fast and you're trying to figure it out. And it was hard. It was two years of work. You get one day off a week, but you don't even get the full day. It's really just the day to do laundry and grocery shopping. And uh, it was amazing, like hard work, but I really enjoyed it. I loved it. And I have this uh, special place in my heart for Brazilian people. Yeah, that's so special. Did you get to pick Brazil or were you given Brazil as like, because from my understanding, you're really just given a spot and sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you don't. They have an application. You fill out information about yourself, a bio. I studied three years of Spanish in high school, which didn't amount to anything. Is Hola, como estas? You know, order burrito. That was our final. We'd go on a walk and order burrito. Like that was it, all I knew of Spanish. Yeah, you fill out a form and they uh, they just ask you, do you want to speak another language or not? And you can say no and they can still send you somewhere where you have to learn. But you know, you have, you have no choice. They assign you, but it's always an exciting thing. And I didn't even know what Portuguese was when I got the letter in the mail and I said, okay, you're going to Brazil speaking Portuguese. I'm like, what's Portuguese? 
That's amazing. It's just so nice to be exposed to new cultures, right? Like I think most times in life, we will maybe travel for a week or two, right? Like once you kind of have a family and kids, if you're lucky, you do get to travel a little bit, but you don't really get to live in another location, you know, especially outside the U.S. for extended periods of time. So I, I think it's amazing that it forces you to be out of your comfort zone when usually when you have your life and your family and kids all sorted, that's not really an option anymore. Because, I mean, picking up your three daughters now and moving to Brazil would be a whole thing. Taking your Rivian to Brazil, <laughs> it would be a whole thing. Okay, so you did your, your couple years in Brazil, which is amazing. And then walk me through what happened next. When did the JP Morgan of it all play in? Was that before Brazil, after Brazil? Walk me through that. Yeah, so my freshman year of college, so I did a year of college before going to Brazil. Uh, freshman year of college, is my first time leaving my house. I was young. I was figuring life out. I won't tell you my GPA, but it was not acceptable. And, uh, you know, spent two years of uh, growing up in Brazil is what I like to call it. And then I came back and realized, oh, I actually need to really figure out what I'm going to study and figure out my life. And yeah, I can still have fun, but I really had to work hard. And so I started this discovery process. And I think it was every semester I declared a different major. So it pushed my degree out probably by about a year because I just, I was so indecisive. I was like, well, I like this, but I like that, but I hate this part. And I really had no clue. And some kids go into college and they say, I know exactly what I want in life. And like, I'm going to be a doctor and this is the path and it's prescribed and it's easy. And I, well, not easy, but they go through the motions. I really didn't have a good mentor. No one to tell me this is what the college experience uh, should be like. I'm the only one of my siblings who has graduated from college. And, and so you know, when I think about that, my dad graduated college and he got a master's degree, but there was nobody there really giving me guidance. So I explored, I really went through that, that phase of, well, psychology, super interesting. I think it's fascinating that I said, well, what are the career opportunities? Oh, well, I don't want to do that, but I, th I love the subject. And, and everybody was giving me different advice. I'm like, you got to study what you love. And in my mind, I'm like, well, I also want to make money, you know, and like, but there's, there's a, there's a trade-off here. Uh, anyway, so I, they had a finance program at BYU and the prerequisite classes were accounting, statistics, and economics, core classes. So I took all three of those. And in the process of doing those, I realized, well, I hate accounting. Accounting is the worst uh, for me. A lot of people share that belief. Yeah. I it's appreciate not that there are accountants in the world and they like, I don't know if they can say they love their job, but they like their job. And I was just, I can't do that. But I also, I love math. I've always loved math. I've been a numbers person. Tell me a number, talk to me 20 years later, I'll remember the number. That's kind of how my brain works. And then economics was just fascinating. Statistics, I was one of those people who loved statistics. It was just interesting. And so I thought, well, how can I get all three? I could be a math major, but then I don't get this. I can be an econ major. I can be a stats major. I can be a finance major, but not really. Well, I stumbled upon actuarial science, which is you take those three, math, econ, stats, and throw them in a blender troll it around and then come up with this funky math, which is some actuarial math. And you decide how, well, one, you do math on like pricing of bonds and, and finance, but there's also the piece of determining how long Erica is going to live and when she's going to die based on her health and everything. And Ooh, so that's a big number. Hopefully it's high. It's a really high number. Um, and uh, it was it was a really interesting subject. And so I, I ended up declaring and I also did, realized I can't keep changing. I got to stick with something. And this one was interesting enough to me. I studied that. I'm giving a really long answer, but I studied that. But as part of the process, I also uh, realized I don't want to be an actuary. Actuaries is also, you know, it's a great job. It's comfortable nine to five, good hours, usually nine to five. But Going back to like an earlier, earlier question, when my dad was working for Sun Microsystems and I was in high school, this was 2000, 2001, the dot-com bubble was bursting. But right before that, I remember my dad coming home and saying, hey, the share price hit 125 or whatever the number was and telling my mom and just listening and being like, okay, 14 years old or 15, however old I was thinking, wait, wait, you're making more money by doing nothing? tell me more. <laughs> this is interesting. Um, now th th there's, there's more to it, but I started getting fascinated, interested. And so I naturally was just kind of interested in, in investing. And then I met a friend and they said, Hey, we've got this investment banking club on campus. You should come. So I joined the club and then I interviewed for a few investment banking uh, internships and realized I don't want to be an investment banker. 
long-term and just the hours. And some of my friends were like, oh yeah, the hours I did this summer, I was doing like a hundred hour weeks. And I was thinking, who wants to do that? It sounds miserable. So I joined the club and one thing led to another. And next thing you know, I go on a you know, recruiting trip and I learned about wealth management and realized, oh, well, I love people. I love talking to people. I love talking in general, at least about subjects that I care about. And great, like, let's go this. And so that was how I started going down that path of thinking, well, I've got this actuarial science undergrad degree, but I want to go this direction. There is overlap as far as critical thinking and being good at math and understand the economy. How do I parlay that into something else? And so I uh, rolled up my sleeves and this is just kind of how I am. When, when there's something I want to, I'm going to go at it 110%. I'm just going to grind. And so some people work smarter, some work harder. And I try to do a little bit of both. And uh, one thing led to another, and I ended up getting a job offer with, from JP Morgan. And I was the only non-finance major that got an offer for like that region. And, uh, you know, there were like 100 people who applied. And I'm like, why did I get the job? I'm the actuarial science guy, you know, but I, but I, but I did it. And, uh, you know, rest is history. I love it. You went after it. I think that's also the sign of a real entrepreneur. Like, it's so easy for people to talk about their ideas. It's so easy for people to talk about making career changes. But like, someone that has a bias for action is always going to come out on top at the end of the day. And I also think you make a great point about these banks. I think not everyone knows this, that there's so many different types of jobs you can have at a bank. And that may sound like, oh, duh, but, you know, investment banking isn't the only kind of job you can have at a bank. Wealth management, like you said, is another part of the bank. And I think people also don't realize how diverse the world of finance really is, actually. And different personality types can fit in different types of jobs. And it's just kind of about finding what your fit is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm interviewing a bunch of individuals right now who are working at banks. And some said, hey, I'm doing... Uh, you know, underwriting on loans where others are doing wealth management, others are doing equity research. It's, I mean, there are thousands of jobs at banks and you can find a niche. Exactly. If you like to talk to people, if you don't like to talk to people, if you're like a lot more critical thinking or you just like to execute, like there's always something. And I think that's, that's the beauty of exploring, you know, and even like being at a JP Morgan, you can have one job and see what else is out there. Okay, so you're at JP Morgan, you're doing wealth management. I know you're there for a couple of years. And then you somehow find your way to Iconic. And you, you know, you were at Iconic early. And again, you know, for those who aren't familiar with the name of Iconic, it is no pun intended, iconic in the world of, of tech and venture for managing money of the most famous and wealthy people in the world of tech. So how did you even find that gig? Did you at that time understand? family office level wealth? Because I mean, JP Morgan's 5 million is nothing compared to, like you said, iconic. So walk me through like that transition from JP Morgan to early iconic days. Yeah. Being a kid who in college, I worked 30 plus hours a week to pay for school and was kind of on my own from that point. And then going to JP Morgan where the minimum is 5 million and my mind's blown. My boss, my manager, when I was at JP Morgan, and I keep in mind, I was in Palo Alto in San Francisco. So I'm in the middle of like the tech hub. This was 2012. Things are just really taking off. My manager left to this firm called Iconic. I was like, oh, okay, well, that was a bummer. I just started and two, three months later, he left. And then the bankers I was supporting, I was in the Palo Alto office at the time. And the bankers I was supporting kept complaining, oh, I lost another client to Iconic. I'm like, what's Iconic? Oh yeah, my analyst manager went there. Uh well, if that's where all the clients are going, that's where I want to be. Follow the momentum a little bit. Um, so I did I did stay at JP Morgan for at least two plus years, put in some time. I learned how to work. I learned how to be professional. The setup, I can't even talk. The setup at JP Morgan was a little old school. You know, my first weekend, one of the investors yelled at me at the desk for not knowing something. You know, it was just, it wasn't a great culture when I was there. And that doesn't fit my personality. I'm a very more soft-spoken, easygoing, nice guy. And you can just tell me, hey, fix this and I'll fix it. Like I listen. But at the same time, I was like, you know, I I want to go where, where the excitement is. And so uh, a recruiter reached out to me and my former boss at the same time said, hey, we need to hire. We are desperate. We're growing like crazy. I was like, what investment wealth management firm is growing like crazy? Nobody says that. And so I said, well, let me, let me explore. And so I interviewed... And uh, they gave me an offer and it was a very good offer. But at the same time, I'm just thinking, oh, like I'm going from JP Morgan. Like I had spent my 
college career trying so hard to get a job and I got the job. I got my dream job. And then two years later, I was already looking out the door to the next opportunity. I was like, wait a second, what am I doing? Like, I'm going to a startup. It felt like a startup at the time. Iconic had maybe 40, 45 employees. I, I don't know the exact number. It was around there. Uh, I just know my employee ID number had 50. And I know that there were some employees that had quit. So there were maybe 40, 45 at the time. And so I decided, well, why not? Let's do it. So I moved from Palo Alto up to San Francisco, took the job. I think they had maybe three to four billion in assets at the time, which was as big for an RAA or a wealth management firm as far as assets. And, you know, people don't know. It's like, hey, I that's how wealth management firms measure their growth is the size of their assets that they're managing. And on three weeks in, my manager looked at me and said, okay, we need your help. Here's a, a $2 billion book of business. We need your help managing the investment portfolio. And I looked at him like he was crazy. And I said, you do know that at JP Morgan, the banker wouldn't let me call a CPA for a client without getting their approval. And you're handing me $2 billion and telling me, I don't have time to keep track of this, run. And so I rolled up my sleeves. And next thing you know, I went from managing individuals who had five to $10 million to, oh, name drop, name drop, name drop, individuals, balance sheets are several hundred million each and their net worths are north of one, two, three, five, ten billion dollars. It was crazy. And like, there was one day where um, I, uh, they had this trading rotation and it started at 6 a.m. So we would, two of us would show up and be available in case somebody wanted to trade. And this very uh, well-known entrepreneur calls at six in the morning. And this person is known for being a night owl that they, um, wouldn't go to bed until after the sun had come up is kind of how they were. And, and he calls me and he's like, Hey, so I want to sell, I think I want to sell about a hundred million of, of this stock. And I've only been there six months. I'm two and a half years, three years into my career. And I'm working a hundred million dollar trade of a stock at six thirty in the morning. You know, just like, it's crazy how quickly things go from small town to I got my dream job and I left that to take this other job. And all of a sudden I'm trading $100 million. What am I doing? You know, it's crazy. The overnight piece of it. I mean, I know you worked so hard to get where you, you were, but that's what's really shocking. It also, hearing you talk about it, it sounds perfect for your personality. Like the more we're talking, the more it's clear that you like to be in the heart of the action and you like high stress, high autonomy, which then makes sense why you started your own thing. But it sounds like it really, yeah, it all, it all fits together. But it's just incredible to be thrown into the deep end. I think not enough people do that for young talent. And again, not everyone can handle it, but the ones that can really soar. And I know you ended up being there for six years. So, you know, what would you say was like the biggest change from day one to the day you left? Was it obviously you, I'm sure, scaled the amount of, you know, assets under management that you were personally touching? I'm sure you met a lot of amazing people. But what would you say was like the biggest change throughout your time there? Yeah. Um, when I was at Iconic, we would always joke that uh, years at Iconic were uh, dog years. And so I think I spent probably three careers, three full lifetime careers in my time there. And I was only there six years. I say only, but six years is a long time, I think, for anybody to be at one job these days. It feels like everybody's, hey, two years out of job, I got my two-year vest, I'm locked in, go to the next job, collect those and go. It was just fascinating. But I think the things that changed were so to back up, JP Morgan has, I don't know how many, 100,000, 300,000. I haven't looked at the numbers and someone can look it up and tell me I'm totally wrong. But JP Morgan is a massive institution and they just acquired First Republic. No big deal. Like it's a big institution. I then went to this small firm that had 40, 50 employees. And by the time I left it, it scaled to almost 300. And I think today they're north of 500, 600, somewhere around there. An institution in any job, like if you have a startup, and you talk to a founder and you've got a founder and a co-founder, there's two people and they say, great, we're going to start a business. And then these men and women say, great, we want to hire some employees. Well, the first time you hire an employee, it changes. And then employees, then, then you hire managers and you start creating these layers. The complexity of a business, not every CEO and founder can manage that process. It is really hard. And uh, the CEO of Iconic, he's a very talented salesman networker. He's, he, I mean, obviously he built an incredible business, but one thing that I think was missing was, was the true culture and how do you scale a business and retain talent? And they, they didn't care about retaining talent as much. And so of those 250, 300 employees, the amount of turnover that happened during that time, there were probably 400 plus people who went through that firm. 
and you start to feel that. And uh, I realized, you know, this is this is great, but I'm working for someone else. I'm lining someone else's pockets, which is good for him. I didn't find these clients. I didn't do the hard work. I mean, I worked hard, but it was I was doing a job, and uh, I was just realized that you know I I need to work for myself. Living in the Bay Area, you can't survive on W-2 income. Salary and bonus only get you so far. You can't buy a house on W-2 income in the Bay or in New York or other places. You've got to own something. So that was when I realized, all right, I'm going to uh, hang a shingle and, and take the leap. Be an entrepreneur. Start your own. So tell me what, so obviously you've started Athos. We can get into the nitty gritty a little, but it's like you've got the wealth management side and then you've got actually the, the investment side. And now you're a founder. What would you say in your own words is like the biggest difference between what you're doing? It doesn't even have to necessarily be at Iconic. We can just say like other family offices and you at Athos. What is your approach that's different? And I know obviously we've talked about this, but I'd love for other people to hear like, how are you thinking about culture? How are you thinking about the investments you make? How are you thinking about doing things differently at Athos now that you have the power to do what you want? It's your it's your firm. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, the, the one thing I always preach to my team is uh, the um, the only constant is change, which it's very cliche to say, but that's, that's how our firm has been. We are in our, let's see, if I count my home offices before I had offices, one, two, three, four, we're in our fifth office in three years. Things are constantly changing here. And as I look at our firm, ask me that question in five years. I'm going to talk to you in five years. Ask me that exact same question and you're going to get a completely different answer from me. And as I look at our firm though, being at Iconic, it was very much, well, I'm working with the who's who in tech. Like I was going to meetings, sitting across the table, giving advice to individuals that you only read about in the news. And very few people actually can say that they've done that. I was in a seat that most people would kill to get. And people ask me like, why would you leave a very good paying job working with amazing people, you're networking and socializing with these people to go work for yourself and make zero in the first year, year and a half and just grind. I said, because I, I mean, you said it well, it's, I love building. I love creating. I have, I'm an idea guy. I have too many ideas. Um, and my wife is my co-founder here. And so she, she keeps me in line and says, you have too many ideas. You need to focus on one, maybe two. You know, we call those people, we call them popcorn heads. You got lots of ideas popping. Nonstop. I have to control myself. But Athos, basically what I did is I built Athos as a firm. It's a multifamily office. And we look at Iconic just to use them as the, like a reference point. A multifamily office is basically you have a bunch of wealthy individuals who could go out and start their own family office on their own and typically need between a hundred million and a billion dollars to start a family office. But it gets expensive. You want to hire a chief investment officer, you're paying them half a million to a million a year plus to do, if they're going to genuinely do a really good job, at, and that's at a minimum, if you want access to the best investments and everything there, who's going to manage the portfolio, but then also, oh, wait, you want to take a private jet every weekend to some different place. You're going to Vegas, and then you're going to Wyoming, and you're going to Yellowstone Club, and you're going to Hawaii, you're going wherever. Oh, hey, you got to go to the Met because we're doing the Met Gala. Great. You got to show up there. Life gets busy. And then if you have kids and a family, oh, I need a nanny or two nannies. And hey, well, who doesn't want a private chef? I know you, you Erica, want a private chef. So um, badly. That's my yeah. dream. I, I, I listened to one of your podcasts and heard that. And um, But it's like, I, I do too. Like, who doesn't want these things? And when you have the money, you can do it. Well, you're basically running a business. These wealthy individuals, the assets they have and the income that their portf- investment portfolios generate is greater than majority of a lot of small businesses in the US. Well, who's going to run that business? And it's not just this small little business. It's very complicated and complex and requires a strong network. And so Iconic takes all these families together and manages it and creates synergy. So I was able to run to an extent 10 to 12 family offices because I could rely on other team members across the board, but I, I could be a focal point there. So when I started Athos, I realized, well, there's a lot of 20-somethings that's just to you know, play with your podcast name, but it's like there are a lot of 20-somethings who are building incredible businesses, but they are not billionaires yet. And you don't have to be a billionaire to have a family office. But hey, I want to start my own family office, or I, I at least want to dabble in that world. And I want to do some direct investing, but who's going to review the contracts for me and kind of be that mentor or guide along the way? 
as I build this. And so I built Athos focused specifically on those younger, earlier on entrepreneurs who raise their pre-seed round, their seed round, their A round, maybe a B. Banks will say, hey, here's a checking account. I'll talk to you in four years when you have money. Well, when you need the advice is at the beginning. Before the money comes in. <laughs> Before the money comes in. And who's going to help you think about the taxes and structuring it and think about your cap table? Are you bringing on the right venture funds that actually help you go uh, grow in the right way? And some some individuals are talented and well-connected and can do it on their own. But others, kind of like me, didn't have the mentors at the network to grow up with to get to where they wanted. So I built a firm focused on that. And um, you know that's kind of our difference. But the thing is, you know, I've worked with the billionaires. I know what the process looks like. I know the destination and I know the journey. And so I meet founders at the beginning and then we grow together is kind of how I look at it. Um, and so that's our differentiation point is, uh, you know, I don't go reading the news and mean like, okay, who just announced an IPO and who's just, you know, raised $50 million. And I know they took five or 10 million off in secondaries and lined their pockets, which is awesome, but that's not the right way to go about it. And so that's, so we're building something different. That really resonates because I think like instead of trying to almost steal the people that have already made it from the other multifamily offices that they've already snatched up or other firms, you're starting with people from the very beginning and taking that bet on them the way that they're taking a bet on you. Because ultimately, like you're both entrepreneurs. Like I think about someone that's like, you know, just raised their A. They they don't have a crazy amount of wealth. They're still on a small salary and they're building their dream and you're building your dream. And you guys can kind of come together and say, hey, like I'm taking a bet on you. You take a bet on me. If something comes of either of us, we'll help each other. And I think that's really refreshing. Honestly, entrepreneurs like entrepreneurs. It's like, I think that that's why you and I get along, right? It's like, mm-hmm. like, likes, like. And I think there's something really refreshing about not having to go to a JP Morgan or having to go to a 600 plus person family, multifamily office and just kind of like be in their funnel. You're able to really have that like, oh, I respect that you're building something. So am I, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's awesome. So in terms of the world of family offices, I have, I have one final question before I ask you the last one. The world of family offices is very opaque. It's maybe the best way to describe it. And there's a lot of people that don't understand when they should know or meet family offices. And I say that because I speak to founders all the time who have no idea that they could get direct investments from family offices. They think that they're just raising from venture funds and angels, and they don't know that there's this whole other world. So my question is kind of twofold. One, what are the things that family offices can invest in? Hint, it's everything. And two, how do you recommend founders, VCs, people who maybe could benefit from family office capital, how do they find them? Yeah. So you're leading the witness here, but uh, I, I, I like am. the question. Yeah. Family offices, if, you know, it, it's its own business. And when you look back in history, family offices were structured much more differently. The whole focus was a family, a traditional family office will say, hey, we've got $300 million just to make up a number. We're going to put half of that money into real estate because real estate is stable, pays off income, and that income is going to support me, my family, my siblings, whoever for forever. And then we'll put the other half into more interesting investments and we're focused just on ourselves. That's how family offices historically have been set up today with technology, with access everywhere, the internet, which sounds funny to say that, but like the internet really changed things. It is much easier to get access. You can go on AngelList and find a direct deal. Is it a good deal or not? Who knows? The world of investing and Erica, you know this, but like Investing still has to do with access because I'll give you an example. We invested in stability, the AI. AI is hot right now. Anthropic, stability, open AI. Well, if you wanted to invest in stability, how do you get access to it? Well, maybe someone throws something onto AngelList and says, hey, the valuation is 4 billion just to make up a number. Well, anybody can invest and say, hey, I invested in stability. Well, is that a good return? Maybe, maybe not. It all has to do access. I have a friend who then knew somebody who had an LLC that was already on the cap table. They wanted to sell because they're starting a venture fund. We bought their position at a lower valuation because of this network effect. And we didn't get Roford, meaning you know we didn't get called out by the other investors saying, hey, you can't buy this position. We want to take it because that's a good valuation. So I got in at a really good valuation on that one below what, what the market rate is. And so when I look at family offices, Family offices generally because of their size and their network and having a lot of money, you generally get into better networks. You can get better access to investments 
generally. And so the thing that's changed today as I look at family offices is there are single family offices that do this and then there's multifamily offices like Athos and they act interchangeably in that they can get better access to investments or better pricing or get into deals that normal everyday people writing a $25,000 check or a $5,000 check or whatever your number is can't get access to. And family offices are also opening it up to people outside of their family now. And I've, there's a, here in Utah, there's a family office that started a $30 million venture fund. And they're bringing in other people saying, hey, we're going to invest 5 million into this. And whoever else wants to piggyback off of our check, join the ride. Now we're going to charge you some fees for that and treat it more like a venture fund. But that's the changing dynamic. We're seeing some family offices turning into private equity shops and hedge funds and different approaches. And what we're doing with our firm is bringing together a lot of families, aggregating capital to then act as if we're a single family office, but you don't have to be a billionaire. You can say, I can only do $5,000, but you still get really good pricing into really good deals. Yeah. The access doesn't go away, but the capital that you have available is much greater because you have multiple families. Yeah. And then in terms of getting access, like let's say a founder is listening to this right now who's building something amazing and they're like, huh, I didn't know that you could raise from family offices. How do you recommend people find or reach family offices? Because as you know, a lot of families don't want people to maybe know that they have a lot of wealth. And, you know, there's a lot of secrecy around, oh, this is our name, you know, X Capital. And then you look under the hood. Oh, you you manage the, the money for these two famous people, but you don't necessarily know that. So do you have any kind of behind the scenes advice for folks that want to learn more about the family office world, think it could be a source of capital for them, but don't really know where to start? Yeah, there are a couple of different ideas. A lot of families don't want people to know that they have money, but there also are a lot of families that do want people to know that they have money. Problem is the ones that want people to know they're getting hit up a lot more. And so, I mean, what I've done is you got a network. It, it, like nothing replaces the network of going out and calling people, meeting people and saying, hey, let's get a coffee chat. I'm in town, meet up and then asking, you know, hey, Erica, you, you run your own venture fund. Who do you know that I could talk to? Well, I know you know a few people in your own network. That'd be great people to meet. It's all about leaning on your close network. I grew up in small town, Hollister, which is a great place. The hills are beautiful. There are no billionaires in Hollister. Hollister. There are no family offices. Absolutely. And so it just started by reaching out to people and getting to know people. And obviously the industry I'm in helps, but a lot of it is asking people questions and being curious and find out, hey, do you know anybody who has a family office? Oh, I don't, but my friend's in investing. Well, great, talk to them and find out. A lot of it is is just the network effect. And the other is also, who are those kind of centers of influence? You know, someone call me, send me a message. I know dozens of family offices who are very interested in writing direct checks into companies. And I help founders, there are a number of founders that we work with um, who are, you know, they're clients of our firm or they're just friends and they're raising funds. And so I will reach out to venture funds and family offices alike and say, Hey, there's this amazing company. Here's the pitch deck. I will broadcast it to my network generally, but you, you have to find those centers of influence. And until then, just, it just takes time. Like that's, that's the only yeah, no, yeah. Nothing works better than just rolling up your sleeves. Yeah. And I think your second point is really strong too, like finding the believers, you know, like if you find those, those nodes of people who really believe in what you're doing, they will then help you and open up their network. So I think that's also the power of the network. It's like, you know, you're obviously meeting your own people, but then the ones who really believe in you will open up so many more doors. I mean, that's how we met, right? Like someone we both know really believes in me. And like, that means the world to me and he's opened up his network to me. So I think that's really what it comes down to. It's just finding those believers too. He's also a saint. Yeah, he's the best. Okay, so last question. This show, we have a lot of 20-something listeners. We actually have some folks all over the board, but it's mostly 20-somethings that are super ambitious. What is your advice for them? If you could give one piece to all of them, whether or not they want to go into investing or business, is there one piece of advice that you'd like to share? Sure, absolutely. So my entire career has been built on failures. And maybe it's a cliche thing. Maybe I'm, I'm 37, so... I'm older than your average audience member. I remember my 20s. I remember my teens. My entire career has been marked with failures, like tons and tons of failures. I was not your 4.0 student in college. I didn't like, I was had good grades in high school. And then I got to college and realized, oh, I'm just a small fish in a really big pond. 
you know, I was top 10 in my class in high school and then I got to college and I felt like I was the bottom 10. That's kind of how it felt. There are smart people everywhere. Everyone's successful. That's what it felt like. Everyone's smarter than me. And I think the big thing for me is you got to take those failures. Obviously, everything I say is, is so cliche, but it's so true is you've got to learn from those failures and it's don't treat it as a failure saying, this was my learning opportunity. What do I take? That's a stepping stone and it gets you up. And I think about my firm. Oh, I've made so many mistakes um, from the beginning, even launching my firm before I launched it, just here or there, but you learn from those and that's how you create something better. There's a, a company that we, we've invested in and that company, those founders started a business and they had a business model. This was maybe two, three years ago. And they completely changed the business model in the past six months, complete 180, different direction. Like the, the main concept is the same, but how they're going about it. Had, they were trying to do too much. They took it down to their MVP and saying, we're just doing this right here. And now we're going to scale. We got rid of X, Y, and Z. They made a ton of mistakes, but they learned from that. I'm going to back up the truck and fund this company again and again, because they're going to crush it because the founders that are willing to accept their mistakes and own it, they win like every single time. And so I think about me, it's just, it's a, it's a journey too. Like I'm going to make a lot more mistakes as I go on. I, I tell people, like, I'm not perfect. Nobody is. People are going to sell you a story. Oh my goodness, this wealth manager is awesome. And they're going to be the best investor ever. I'm like, yeah, it's a bunch of baloney. And so it, it's really about being, being honest. And I, that's probably the root of it really is not failures. It's about being intellectually 100% honest with yourself. And it works every time. I love it. Yeah. I think it's it's also refreshing to hear from you. I think whenever we have our guests on and they can talk about the fact that they've failed um, and they've had and that, that like it's actually most important to be honest about the pivots and the failures. That's what resonates because I think a lot of people think that they have to put on a front, especially founders, especially founders that may want to work with you. But it's important that people talk about those failures. Robbie, thanks for being here. Can you let everyone know where they can find you online, where they can find Athos if they want to learn more? And we'll link everything in the show notes. But if you want to share a little more about where they can find you. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. This has been fun. Our website is athoswealth.com, A-T-H-O-S wealth.com. My email is Robbie, R-O-B-B-I-E at athoswealth. Email me. I won't share my number because then I'll get blown up, but you can go to our website. You can find me on LinkedIn, Robbie Shattuck. You know, my name is pretty straightforward. Yeah, that's it. Cool. Well, thanks, Robbie. Appreciate you being here. Yeah. Thanks, Erica. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Dear 20 Something. If you enjoyed it, you can give us a follow over at Dear 20 Something on Instagram or subscribe here or anywhere you get podcasts.